Welcome back to The Shift, the weekly podcast for nurses and midwives, proudly presented by the New South Wales Nurses and Midwives Association. It's Katrina Lee, back with you with another guest speaker from last month's Aged Care Forum. Lynn Chenoweth is a Professor of Aged and Extended Care Nursing from the University of Technology, Sydney. She is also a Professor in Nursing at the Centre for Healthy Brain Ageing and leader of the Nursing Node for the Dementia Collaborative Research Centre at the University of New South Wales. Today, Lynn talks about competencies in aged care, the complex profiles of the older people who live in residential care settings, and some of the issues staff deal with. So without further ado, here is Professor Lynn Chenoweth. Good morning. I hope you've all had a nice big stretch. Is your, are your brain cells active? Are they alert? <laughs> Take some big deep breaths, get the blood pumping in your brain. Um, so thank you very much, Stella, for those kind words. And um, I really appreciate the, um, the information that I've received today from the other speakers. It's fantastic always to come and learn from each other, isn't it? It's wonderful. Okay, so what I'm going to do is break up this presentation into three different parts. And first of all, we're going to look again just a little bit at the complex profiles of older people who live in the residential care setting. And we're going to then look at some of the system issues around the care that's being provided for people and the issues that they deal with and the issues that staff are dealing with. And then we'll have a look at some of the competencies for aged care work. And these competencies, I believe, ought to be translated across any setting where we care for the older person. Okay, so if you look at these pictures, and these are just a few of the many, many pictures of older people. We have people who we are caring for. Some people look really fantastic, like the lady there sitting with her daughter and their dog. She looks terrific, but really, cognitively, she's not able to manage her life herself. She needs a lot of prompting, a lot of care. And she needs a lot of supervision in maintaining function. We have a person who is going closer towards their death. That person has um, a cultural issue in the sense that she can't communicate what her needs are. Um, even though she might look fit and healthy and well, she really can't communicate her needs very well. So therefore we have issues around her needs being met. And we have a man there who's quite depressed. Um, he also has a cultural issue in that his language is different to the language of the majority of staff. And so in his depression, he's starting to isolate himself. So we have a number of different pictures of older people, and you are caring for people with all these different unique needs. Now, when we think about the causes of death of older people uh, in residential care, in the hospital setting, and at home, we're finding that the normal causes of death that happened you know, a decade ago are changing. So some of those systemic issues like cardiovascular disease, respiratory illness, um, and so forth, they're diminishing considerably because of the medical care that we can now provide for people. The fact that we're doing surgery, we're giving treatments for people um, more readily than we ever did before into very old age means that those systemic and infectious illnesses are decreasing. So more and more people are dying more of the neurodegenerative diseases, which you can see arising as people age, going to their 90s and 100s. Uh, those neurodegenerative diseases are increasing, and the metabolic diseases, such as diabetes 
and thyroid diseases, for example, are maintaining the same level that they always did. So therefore, because we have changing disease patterns and people living with different types of diseases now, we find that we have functional decline in some of the functional areas of health, such as bladder and bowel. The senses, people's hearing and their sight and their feeling of sense in space and their balance, things like that. We have difficulties with people maintaining nutrition, hydration, mobility, vigour and self-care, cognition and emotional health, and of course we have the issue of polypharmacy. So these are the fundamental issues that you're dealing with yourselves in the day-to-day -day care of the older person. Now if we have a look at this graph, we can see that as people age, they go into very old age, the neurodegenerative diseases are rising. And so the, the big issue that you're finding is ataxia. So people's mobility, their, their balance, their fragility in mobilising, those are the things that you're so worried about. That's why we tend to have a little bit too much restraint, even though we don't call it restraint. In a sense, we do, because we're trying to prevent people from falling and fracturing. So these issues, um, issues around um, a person's perception of their reality, um, how they use their spaces, how they maintain their cognitive function, which has a major impact on how they maintain self-care and how they maintain socialisation and emotional health. All of these things are starting to change the older the person becomes because their brain is being affected as they age. And so when we go into residential care, we look and we see that there's a large pr proportion of people who have emotional issues and mental health issues associated with cognitive changes. So depression is one of the biggest ones that you'll see, and we don't know whether there's a direct association between cognitive impairment and depression, or whether one causes the other, but all we know is that they both coexist. So you'll have half of your population of people with a cognitive impairment who also are depressed. And that is a big issue because it's about motivation, isn't it? So if you have people who are depressed, they're not wanting to engage with self-care, they're not wanting to socialise, they're not wanting to have care provided for them. They just want to turn their back to the wall and they just want to be left alone. And that, that creates a problem in itself because if you want to keep people hydrated and mobilised and, um, and so forth, then they're not you're going to have to create a lot of energy in trying to motivate and, and get people moving and um, looking after themselves. So as Joe mentioned, that we've got people there needing palliative care, and I would say that really anyone in a state of high care need is someone who needs palliative care. Uh, they may not have active treatment, but what they need is pain relief, they need comfort and symptom control, and they need the sense of well-being that creates um, uh, an easy passage into the, the end of their life. So we have all of these major issues going on, and you are struggling to provide care and supervision of care for people with all of these needs. Now, one of the big issues around cognitive impairment is that people don't always have dementia, but they might have cognitive slowing. So they might have, uh, they might get a delirium, 
they might have a depression, they might just have cognitive slowing and not able to manage very well. And so some of the symptoms that we recognise that I've actually listed there, and I know it's difficult for you to read it because um, of the lighting, but you can see there that different parts of the brain become affected. And these different parts of the brain create a lot of different symptoms. And these different symptoms, if you understand why it's happening, are understandable. And they're not simply occurring because a person's being difficult or manipulative or just create, uh, trying to get attention. These things are happening in the brain because a person simply has brain damage occurring. And therefore, what we need to do is to think about what we can do to create a situation and a care model for people that enables them to maintain their sense of well-being and their ability to maintain function, given that this brain damage is occurring. And some of these symptoms that occur creates a lot of difficulty for them because staff are not aware of what, what it is and how to go about preventing it. So therefore, we have major issues for people with dementia in particular, and also people with brain slowing and people with delirium. So we have a lot of issues occurring around loss. And Joe mentioned that. People are losing their capacity. They're losing their ability to make decisions for themselves. They're losing capacity to understand what's going on. Um, they're losing capacity for self-determination. And not only that, they're losing their health, they're losing their function, they're losing social connections and emotional attachments to people. So all of these things can give rise to a lot of distress. And they have a sense of apprehension about the future. They have a sense of a loss of well-being. So therefore, what we need to think about if we're looking at um, the competencies that everybody who's caring for them needs to have, we need to get people to understand what the person is going through. And this is the fundamental basis of upskilling your staff in being able to provide really high quality care, understanding where the person's at, understanding what they're going through, and understanding what we can do to support their emotional, social, and physical needs. And of course, the polypharmacy that they're having to uh, take um, means that a lot of the disease conditions that they might bring with them into the residential care setting or into the hospital setting or in the community setting means that they're going to be on medicines which often have a very serious side effect and also in combination they might have very detrimental health effects. And as we know that the number of medications that older people are taking as they go into their 80s, 90s could be more than five, some people are taking 10 or more. We did a major audit of um, aged care facilities in a study that I'm involved in called HALT, which is about stopping antipsychotic medication in nursing homes. And we found that people could be taking up to 10 or more medications. Can you imagine what effect that will have on their physical health, on their cognitive health, on their emotional health? Drastic stuff is happening when people are being prescribed medications which they don't need. And so therefore, um, the other thing is that people are also taking over-the-counter medicines, such as vitamins and minerals, uh, herbs, all sorts of things. And this polypharmacy, it's creating health illness and issue, uh, issues themselves. Now, 
The other thing that we have to train our staff to understand is that when people are taking these medicines, they're going to be side effects that are going to influence the person's well-being. So, for example, if people have a dry mouth from medication, tachycardia, confusion, diarrhoea, constipation, um, peripheral edema, all of these things like syncope, these are the things that makes a person feel absolutely shocking. And so that if we don't really understand this, the staff will not actually be sensitive to the person's inability to be able to self-care or to cooperate with care or to actually sit quietly somewhere in an activity or be able to cooperate with care itself. So these are some of the issues that the older person is experiencing, which we need to think about when we're thinking about competencies in care management. The other issue is around depression, and some of the drugs that people are taking are creating depression. So that's one of the reasons why we're trying our best to make staff, particularly managers, and particularly GPs aware that some of the prescribing that is going on is really detrimental to the health of the person, particularly if it's causing all of these other symptoms, and particularly depression. So we really are striving our best to get rid of some of these drug prescribing issues. Now when we think about the system where older people are being cared for, we can see that there's a whole range of services being provided. And some of the services that you are familiar with are those that occur in a supported setting. And in all of these settings that occur, you're going to have people who are at different levels of need, depending upon how they've been assessed. And we have variable models of quality assessment occurring. So some people are being assessed as having low care need, and within five minutes of them arriving in your facility, you will realise that that's really not a good assessment. These people really have very high care level needs, but if they've been assessed at home, where they're in their normal environment and they're functioning in a system in the home where they're familiar, then they're going to actually be able to function better. They come into the residential care setting and suddenly they're out of their depth, they don't feel familiar, people around them are strangers, they're being um, overstimulated by the environment um, and therefore they're not going to do very well. So what you'll find is that the issue is that we need to reassess regularly to really make sure that people have got the services that they actually need when they come into care. So the focus of care, wherever the person is being looked after, is really preventing risks to the health and well-being. That's the fundamental focus. Particularly if you're a, resident, you're a registered nurse, an enrolled nurse, these are your fundamental responsibilities. Preventing further functional decline, supporting and remaining, supporting the remaining function and self-care. Ensuring self-determination and resilience in the setting and supporting quality of life and supporting personhood. And this idea about personhood was something that was developed by um, a person called Tom Kitwood. You might have, some of you, heard about the person-centred care approach. And the person-centred care approach was based on this idea that each of us has an identity. We bring to any care setting an identity 
of who we are, who we believe we are, and that's made up of all of our personality, our social background, our cultural values, all it is that has made us who we are. And if we don't support that in each individual person, that person will deteriorate into a state of ill-being. So one of the fundamental things that we need to be responsible for is to make sure that that person's unique identity and their value system is maintained. So I've put it there as one of the fundamental core responsibilities that we have to maintain. Now, when people come into the residential setting, there's a whole array of responsibilities for care and services. And if we just look at the, the management and governance structures, we can say that the, the directors of nursing, the executive team and the senior managers must be responsible for those particular systems. And therefore, their, their competencies must be around those systems. If we look at the health and personal care, we look at the, the resident lifestyle issues in the residential care setting, then the responsibilities for maintaining these services must fall on the registered and enrolled nurses and it must fall on the managers of the services. If we have a look at the physical environment and safe systems of care, again, the executive teams and the managers of those systems must be responsible to ensure that these systems are in place. Now, when you look at the whole array of responsibilities that everybody has, it's going to be a major job for any one manager to ensure that these things are in place and to ensure there's adequate supervision of our direct care staff to maintain good quality health and personal care and resident lifestyle activities. So this is one of the big issues that we're facing. Does our system allow us to support these standards or not? What do older people themselves say that they want? Now, they're, they're oblivious to these things. The older person themselves knows about themselves. They know what they want and what they need. And I think listening to what they say they want is a very important part of what we need to take responsibility for. Whichever area of work you work in and whatever level of responsibility that you have in your job, we need to listen to the voice of the person themselves. And what they all say is we need a sense of security. We want to feel secure in the care that's being provided to us and in the service that's, uh, that we're receiving. They want to feel that there's a sense of continuity in their life so that the life that they lived is brought into the present day situation and that what is happening today, I have confidence that this is going to continue for me. So this is a sense of security that all of us would want in our lives. They have a sense that they want to belong. So if they're moving from their home in the community into residential care or even into the hospital setting or even if they've come in for respite care, they want to feel that they belong, that people make them feel welcome. People care about them. People actually make them feel that they're going to be looked after and that they're not an alien in this environment. They want to have a sense of purpose. So what is going on? What are you doing for me? Why are you doing it? They want to have a sense of ownership over making a decision about what happens in their day-to-day -day care, wherever they're being cared for. 
They need to have a sense of fulfilment so that there's meaning in what is going on. So why are you, why are you giving me this treatment? I don't understand what you're doing. Is it going to hurt me? What is it going to do to help me? There needs to be meaning in what is going on around. If I'm being taken to an activity, I want to go in to, to join an activity that I enjoy, that I can get a sense of meaning out of. Otherwise, it's going to create harm for me. And the person wants to feel a sense of significance, that I'm recognised as a human being, that I'm actually being put into a situation where I'm being, going to feel safe and secure, it's going to have purpose and meaning, and that I'm going to feel as if I'm an important member of this organisation. So these are the things that we have to keep at our forefront. So whatever responsibility you have, keep in your mind that the service must focus on the person. The person must be at the centre of the service and what they say they want, which is what is listed there, is what we need to think about as the foremost responsibility that we have. The systems organisation must be there to support these particular needs. So what are some of the major issues then? And they've already been mentioned by many people today. Basically, ensuring that people have access to services that actually meet their needs. Then we need to be able to obtain sufficient funding to be able to provide a, a quality service now, very often what we're struggling with is third world funding in a first class world health system. So the aged care system, while a lot of the government GDP or a lot of the Australian taxpayers' money is being put into aged care services, the need is much greater than the amount of resources available. So what we've got to do is agitate at a national level, at a state level, to actually say, this system is no longer working. The funding model that has been determined many years ago, when the federal government took over funding aged care, it is no longer working for us. We have to agitate at a very high level. We have to agitate our local members. We have to agitate with all our, our associations that we belong to or that we're willing to join. We have to say it is no longer working. This funding model is no longer adequate to the needs that we have. Particularly if we're going to have a third of our entire population over the age of 65, 75, many of whom are going to need a lot of care services at home or in residential settings or in hospitals, the funding model has to change. And we really have issues around providing working environments that are conducive to the well-being of the staff who are providing the services and also services that attract high-quality staff, people who've got the skills and the experience and the credentials to work in them. And we have another issue is that staff really are not getting access to the education and the ongoing training that they need. We have mandatory training but the amount is minimal to the need that, that exists. So this is another issue, and we have um, major changing population needs. With the growing number of people with neurodegenerative diseases, comorbidities and polypharmacy, the, the issues are growing, and so we have to change our models. 
And of course, we've got this continuous quality improvement system operating. You're all familiar with that. You're all burdened by it. It's constantly creating problems for the registered nurses, the managers, and even the enrolled nurses are constantly involved in this quality improvement monitoring, documentation, justifying why you need the money you need to provide the services that you've got to provide. So this is a burden for people within the system. So what are some of the burdens at the organisational level? Well, it's about staff support. We do not have adequate money and adequate support in supervision, direct care supervision, for our direct care staff. Our direct care staff are struggling to be able to provide the quality of services that they're expected to provide. They're rushing, uh, they're cutting corners because they're not able to cope and they're burning out. We don't have enough mentorship and supervision and training for our managers. So leadership is a big issue in the aged care sector in particular, but it's also a serious issue in acute care. The organisation support for conflict resolution, um, consultation with healthcare teams, preceptor programs, all of these things are lacking funding to be able to provide uh, what we really need to deal with the changing profile of our older population. And another issue is around nurse autonomy. So one of the issues um, you know, that the association has identified is that if we're going to lose registered nurses, basically it means registered nurses don't matter and the whole system is going to fall apart. And what we really need is a class action to, from the community from all of Australian society to say this is absolutely unacceptable. We must have quality registered nurses and enrolled nurses who are supervising quality care staff to be able to make sure that our older people are given the services that they deserve. One of the issues that arises at the organisation level is that we have working relationships that are getting worse because everybody's stressed. The managers are not given the support they need. They don't have the budgets that they need to do the job properly. And an example was around continence pads. If they're told to cut budgets, where do they cut? Do they cut food, quality of the food, catering services? Do they reduce the number of catering staff or the, or the hours that they work so that people have three meals in eight hours? Do they cut continence pads? Do they cut out on wound um, supplies? What do they cut? Uh, if they've got a limited um, budget uh, that they can work with. So the, the issues are really quite serious. And then one of the other issues is around nursing expertise to manage all of the complexity uh, from the, the structural system right down to on-site care. And of course, what happens is we have major issues with care standards. And the, the care standards are variable and it all depends on the training, the experience, the leadership that's occurring. Um, and we can't blame the direct care staff if they don't have good supervision and training. And of course, career development is uh, really stymied in the residential care setting uh, because we do not have adequate training and support um, and staff to relieve people to go on training programs. So at the direct care level, what happens, we get a trickle-down effect and we get poor staff knowledge of direct care needs of older people because of the complexity that older people are suffering. 
And the other issue is around cultural issues. So if we have a multicultural population of people providing care, we have a multicultural population receiving care, can we marry up the two? Uh, can we actually get the right people with the right cultural and language groups to care for people who need those particular services or not? How do we go about doing this? This is one of the big issues that we need to tackle and we need to challenge. One of the big issues too is that in many systems we're focusing on the acute organ system illness at the time and neglecting the psychosocial needs. So because people have cardiac disease, arthritis, respiratory illness, diabetes, cognitive issues, how do we look after all of those needs while also looking after the psychosocial needs that a person has, such as their need for interesting activities to do, socialisation, emotional attachment with others? How do we also meet those needs if we don't have staff with proper skills and training in being able to do that? And one of the other big issues is around communication. And one of the things that I find is that Often the whole issue around quality services comes back to communication, and that's already been discussed. How do we communicate with each other to identify that a person's needs are not being met? How do we identify that I'm not coping in my job? How do I communicate with my um, person who's managing me um, that I have a particular need today and I'm not coping and I need help? How do we do that within our teams? So communication is really a big issue. One of the things that happens for staff, because they're not coping, is they're focusing on getting the tasks done. And it's understandable because if I want to go home at the end of the day and I feel I've done the best that I can do, given the limited resources I have, I focus on making sure people are showered or bathed, I make sure people are clean, I make sure people have got their meals, that they've eaten and they've had some drinks during the day. I focus on making sure that they're sitting somewhere with a group of other people so that they can have a bit of social interaction. And I make sure that their medicines have been given and their wounds have been dressed. So I focus on the tasks around the physical needs, and that's understandable. But unfortunately, those particular needs are only a minor part of what the person actually wants out of the service. And so the other issue is around restraint. Now, we may not actually physically restrain someone in the way that we think of restraint, such as tying people down. We don't do that anymore. But what we do if we're not coping with the situation, if somebody's pacing up and down, they're calling out, they're interfering with somebody else's clothing, or they're eating somebody else's food, or all of the things that people with a cognitive impairment may do if they're agitated, what we might do is put them into a chair and put a table in front of them, knowing full well that person doesn't know how to push the table away and get up. Or we might sit them at a table for an activity like a meal, then we put them in an activity for some sort of social program, and we leave them there for hours, knowing that there's no way that they know how to get up or they can physically get up. Or we put them into a wheelchair or a lounge chair or a water chair or in bed. And, or we might use verbal restraint. So for example, the person might want to go off and wander about and explore things, 
and we're getting a bit agitated about that because other residents are getting angry or upset or families are complaining. So we sort of say, don't, stay there, don't move, stay there, I've told you not to, not to come there. Or they might come to the office and want to sit with you and you, you're busy. So you say, no, no, go and sit down, go and sit down, Mary. I'll come and look after you in a little while. So we use verbal restraint as well. And unfortunately, this occurs because we don't have sufficient staffing, we don't have staff with sufficient skills in knowing how to manage that situation in a humane way. And therefore, we don't use sufficient psychosocial approaches to actually be able to help the person be less agitated because we don't know how to. And therefore, when families complain or families are upset about the way that things are happening, we don't know how to deal with complaint. We don't know how to work and use active listening and empathetic listening to try and get to the bottom of why the families are complaining and what we can do to help them to improve their well-being and also improve the well-being of the person. So therefore, we have families saying things like this. The staff don't seem to know or understand my mother. I know it's difficult to communicate with mum, but nobody seems to be interested in finding out about her as a person. I feel that she's being treated like a number. These are direct quotes from family members who are distressed. No one helped my husband when he wanted to go to the toilet. He fell uh, trying to get out of bed and now he's dying from a fractured hip that has gone septic. These are common stories and while you try your best to try and prevent these things from happening, the system itself is not adequately supported to be able to help you to do a better job to prevent these things from happening. So we can't put the blame on individuals. What we've got to think about is how is the system set up in Australia, in the acute system, in the community system and in the residential system? What is going on that's created a situation where these things can happen? So the human face of this whole issue then is that staff do not really understand, acknowledge, tolerate and meet the person's individual needs, desires and preferences and it occurs for very understandable reasons. The care plans that I look at and that I review and I help staff work through very often do not focus on the individual person. So they're actually focused on generic issues rather than the specifics. And staff are often so busy getting the tasks done that they don't notice that the person's not getting their needs met and the staff feel disempowered. So this is the kind of model that actually explains that if you've got an environment of care that is not conducive to meeting the needs of the individual, if staff do not have adequate skills and training and understanding, you're going to get a cycle of sometimes abuse and sometimes a lack of uh, quality services. So what are the challenges for aged care managers, nurses and direct care staff? Well, you can't read this unfortunately, but basically when we surveyed across New South Wales in the Australian Capital Territory and across the rest of Australia in other studies, uh, what we found is that really we have major issues around the issues that have already raised. Staff don't feel empowered, staff don't have adequate resources, staff feel that they're not given um, adequate training and support and they, their voices are not being heard. 
but what makes staff satisfied in aged care work? The reasons are altruistic. They love the work they do. They love looking after older people. They feel they can make a difference. They feel that the work they're doing is meaningful. They can make a difference. So they go home at the end of the day feeling they've done a worthwhile job. So these are the reasons people stay despite all of the difficulties they face. The major issues around, as I've already mentioned, staff support, organisational support, lack of autonomy, working relationships with people like GPs and others, um, the care standards, they feel concerned about the care standards, but they're working in a system which will not allow them to provide the professional quality of care that they have been trained to provide. And they go home frustrated and distraught about that, and they don't have the opportunities for career development. And so the main reasons, as I said, are really around the fact that they are doing, um, they're going, uh, getting, giving 200% to provide a service which actually makes them enjoy their job. So the reasons for staying and leaving basically are around the reasons that people have issues are around the structures that are not supportive to their needs and the reasons they, they leave is because those systems are not helping them to do the job well and the reasons they stay is because of altruism. So a well-managed aged care service then really is person-centred. It aims to support each person's uh, personhood. It actively seeks to prevent the person's functional decline and supports their self-care as much as possible. It establishes systems to prevent risks to the person's health and well-being. Ensures that staff uphold the resident's self-determination and helps, helps to build their confidence and resilience and ensures the person has access to medical and support services and it focuses on improving the person's quality of life. So when I go and I review aged care homes, this is what I find. The quality homes, this is what their focus is and this is what their priority is. Okay? Now when we look at the accreditation standards and all of the things that you have to support in personal lifestyle, you'll find that there are many other areas that you have to be responsible for. But the fundamental quality homes, this is what they focus on in all of those systems. And in order to be able to do that, the organisation has put a lot of energy and resources into supporting these particular outcomes. So um, really, this is what they produce. And when we talk about the accreditation standards not assessing outcomes, when we actually assess outcomes directly, so the, the outcomes for the staff, the outcomes for uh, the person, the outcomes for the organisation, what we find is that we have better management practices occurring in quality homes, we have quality care outcomes for the older person, and enhanced safety and so forth. So all of the things that are really are marks of quality leadership. And this study that was led by Yunhee Jean that I've mentioned there, she has found that a quality system actually has quality leadership systems in place. And that quality leadership at the middle manager level and at the senior manager level and at the team level, you know, when you've got a team manager, then you'll actually find that those things are in place. And it means that 
the people providing direct care have got the supports that they need to do a good job and they feel empowered to make suggestions and to be part of the decision-making processes. So um, I'll just move on a little bit because we're running out of time. So well, let's look at the competencies for all aged care staff. So Tom Kitwood talked about this and he said if you're going to provide a quality person-centred service, really everybody in the organisation at every level, in every department, has to work together. And it starts with leadership from the top. We need, we need agreement from the bottom, but we must have this uh, governance from the top. If we do not have senior managers and executive putting money into and resources into supporting a person-centred organisation, it will not happen. You might have individual staff providing really quality care individually, but if the teams don't work together, and that includes your managers, then you're not going to get these, to be, these uh, types of services sustained. Because when that person leaves the organisation, the services fall into disarray. So it must be from the top all the way through. And what, it, what he said was that all staff need to develop high interpersonal awareness and interpersonal skills. So everybody in the organisation should be striving towards supporting the well-being of each other. Okay, not just your residents and your families, but each other. And that the skill development needs to have a focus on profound personal transformation as a human being. So as a professional nurse, you have to constantly professionally develop yourself in your role, but you must develop yourself personally as a human being. And we take on an oath. When I went nursing, I started my nursing training in the late 50s, we, there was a nurse's oath. And I feel that that oath is still true for me today as it was then, that we take on an ethical responsibility to better, to better the system, to better the service, to better ourselves, to provide a service which is going to be one that I'm proud to work within. So this is what we need to focus on. And so you can see here that if we're going to think about competencies for the senior staff, that there are a number of things that they must do to be able to be competent. Um, so they need to be able to partner with residents and families. They need to be able to work with their staff. They need to be able to support individuals in their individual needs. They need to deal with the structural barriers to the changes that are required. They need to be able to establish core beliefs and values as an organisation. They need to be the leaders of creating a culture which is supportive of each other. They're really core competencies of leadership in creating a culture which is going to support the needs of everybody within it. And they need to be able to invest time and support in education for managers and for their staff. They can't hide themselves away in an office and just do paperwork. They've got to come out on the floor and work with their teams to provide the support and supervision and the inspiration for, for staff so that they feel supported. And they need to tackle workplace authority, control and power. If they see that there's bullying, bullying going on at all different levels, and sometimes bullying by families, they've got to come in and work as a leader and try to work through those issues and look at the power differentials occurring 
and be a servant to their staff. Okay, so these are what the competencies for managers are. And so therefore, they have to be competent in system governance. And I've just listed there a whole range of things that they need to do to make sure that there's good governance structures in place. And one of them starts with recruiting the right people for the right job. So I'm working with some aged care organisations who um, have really tackled this head on. So they bring in, they advertise staff and they make it really clear in their advertisements, this is the type of person we're looking for to do this type of job. So advertisements are particular for particular jobs. They bring people in, they go through a process of questioning and interviewing, which gives people the opportunity to express what they want to get out of the work that they do and what their particular interests are, what type of personality they, are, they have and so forth. And they look at scenarios around how they react in these circumstances. And from that interview and the application process, they're allocated to jobs that are best suited to their particular personality and their particular preferences. And that is far better than bringing in someone who's not suited to providing direct care services. Because if you're bringing in people with the wrong attitude about caring for somebody who's cognitively impaired, emotionally distressed, they're not going to be able to provide the emotional care that is needed because they don't have that capacity. So therefore, one of the first things you need to think about is recruitment and how do you provide ongoing supervision, ongoing training and education, and how do you monitor that? How do you bring people in and actually go through a process of evaluating how they're doing their job with the regular evaluations that you must do for each member of the staff? These are the, the fundamental things that have to happen. So therefore, some of the things that I've listed there are the competencies that must be are supported and they must be achieved for your management teams. Now, if we look at the competencies for registered nurses and enrolled nurses, the New South Wales Nursing and Midwifery Council talk about these. They're quite clear that in any new graduate nurse or any nurse, um, they're one of the most important things that they must be able to do is to communicate effectively. They must be able to work in teams and lead teams, and they must be compassionate and empathetic. So these are common things, um, and if we look at the cycle of care, which, which goes through the process of assessing needs, acting on those needs, reassessing needs and reconceptualizing practice and reviewing constantly in that quality improvement cycle. Those three things are fundamental to the process of being a quality, skilled and intelligent nurse. And this is what we must strive for in aged care. So the specific competencies for aged care nurse around communication and they have to be able to communicate with every member of the service. Um, they need also to be able to communicate really well with families, to be able to de-escalate some of the issues that families raise. Some of the common things, you know, food, laundry, you know, um, the person, uh, they come and find their, uh, their, their member of the family not nicely dressed today. And maybe it's because a person's had a bad night and we've decided to let them stay in bed this morning, let them have breakfast in bed, and we'll manage to look after their, their hygiene needs after they've settled down. 
We have to learn to teach the, um, the registered nurses, the enrolled nurses and the direct care workers how to communicate with families about what we're doing and why we've done it and why things aren't going to look exactly the same today as you would expect to find them. We need to educate our staff how to communicate with families to de-escalate some of the issues they raise and to listen to what they're saying, provide empathy for what they're complaining about and work through a process together on how we can improve the relationship between us. These are some of the fundamental things that we registered nurses, enrolled nurses and even direct care workers need to learn. They need to learn how to build therapeutic relationships among the team, with their residents and with their families. The need to recognise clinical deterioration. This is really, really important. So every registered nurse, enrolled nurse should be very, very clear that they have a responsibility to teach their direct care staff how to pick up on the signs of clinical deterioration. And we need to therefore know the baseline for each individual resident. So if I go to look after Molly this morning and I notice she's a bit confused and she's not wanting me to uh, give her something to eat or she's not wanting to get out of bed, I have to know what is going on for Molly. Is something happening? Is Molly perhaps um, getting a little infection? Is Molly dehydrated? Is Molly a bit confused because she's had a really bad night? She's had a bit of pain in the night? Or maybe she's constipated. What are, what are the signs of confusion? What does confusion indicate in somebody who normally is quite oriented to their reality? What is going on? So we have to actually teach the direct care staff to pick up on signs and to tell the registered nurse or enrolled nurse, you're not sure that there's, that you're not sure about what's happening for Molly, but I think something's wrong with Molly today. And the registered nurse might go and check and say, look, why don't we just keep her in bed? Let's give her some fluids and we'll see how she settles down. Okay, lift up the blinds and let some light into the room. Maybe because the room is dark, she's a bit confused about what the time is. Lift up the blind, let some light in, put on a bit of music, and that might give um, Molly some orientation to it's morning time. We can talk about it. Oh, I can smell the breakfast cooking. Doesn't it smell nice? Let's see whether she can be oriented in that way. So these are some of the competencies that we have to pick up on. The other thing is we need to teach our direct care workers and certainly our registered and enrolled nurses need to know how to assess the person. Basic ADL assessments, but more than that, if a person is cognitively impaired, how do we assess a change in their cognition? How do we assess a change in their emotional well-being? How do we assess a change in their chronic illness? So if someone is a little bit more breathless, or they're not, they're, they're losing a bit of strength, or they appear to be as if they're not standing straight, or their balance isn't right, how do we assess what's going on? How do we keep the person safe? So therefore, some of the basic assessments that we have to learn to do are focused on the individual and what their particular illness is, and particularly if they've got polypharmacy. So what are some of the signs of um, toxicity and what can we do? How do we follow through on that? So these are competencies for the registered and enrolled nurses in particular. 
They also need competencies in education, training and supervision of their direct care staff. They need to know how to provide emotional support to families and residents and their staff, and they need to teach their direct care staff how to also provide emotional support. And they need to be advocates and liaise with the um, external services. They need to be able to liaise with their uh, boards. They need to be able to liaise with senior executive. They need to be able to liaise with families and bringing in services and with particularly their GPs that are coming in. So how do you liaise with the allied health and GPs? How do you get them to come when there's a need? How do you communicate with them in a way that identifies that this person's clinically deteriorating and these are the reasons why? So having the skills of assessment and picking up on cues is an important skill to start with. So when we think about um, the needs um, of the competencies for nurse assistants and therapists, they also need to be able to support the unique needs of each person. And in order to be able to do that, they've got to be knowledgeable in the care about each individual resident who they care for. Sorry. Oh, so you can't hear me, sorry. I'm probably swaying because I'm old. <laughs> and I'm just trying to keep my balance. <laughs> I'm nearly 70 and I'm starting to feel my age. So, um, so one of the things that they have to be, they have to have the knowledge of their individual resident. So they have to know the person. And the only way they can know the person that they're caring for is by communicating with families, communicating within their teams, listening and having good handovers. Now, if we don't have good handovers on each individual person, then the, the staff don't know what they're dealing with, do they? So you can't expect somebody to come in who's been caring for a whole group of other people and they come in today to care for this group of people and they don't even know them. So it's a responsibility of the person giving handover to explain who the person is, what are the things that they normally have done for them each day, but more than that, who are they? What is their, a little brief history of them as a person? What are the things they're capable of doing? What do they like doing? What do they like having done? How do they like things being done for them? This is fundamental. If you're caring for someone, you need to know about them. So that's why I advocate that we have um, little brief handovers on each person and we do it in a way that gives the staff members some little handout sheet, whether that handout sheet is in the person's room, it's in somewhere in their room, it's somewhere that the, the, the staff member can actually access easily so they know about the people they're caring for. That's just fundamental good practice. They need to actually be able to take responsibility for the well-being of that person. So they need to know, therefore, in the handovers and in the clinical guidelines that they have and in the care plans that they get access to, how do I support the well-being of this individual person? That's just fundamental. How do I meet their physical care needs? How do I meet their health needs? So therefore, they need sufficient time to have this information provided to them. And they need to be able to be aware of the consequences of treatment and care that's provided for each individual person. And to be act, 
be able to act correctly. So they need to feel safe and confident that if I'm not sure what I'm doing, I'm not sure what's going on for this person, I feel confident enough to go and speak to my team leader or to speak to my registered nurse or my manager and explain that I'm feeling a bit confused about what's happening for this particular resident. I'm not sure whether I'm providing the right care. I'm not sure what I need to do for them and I'm concerned about them. If they don't feel confident and safe to do that, then they're going to just do whatever they can do and it may not be right. They might cause harm inadvertently or they might neglect a person. So all of us have a responsibility to support our direct care staff. They should not feel they come to work and be frightened to, to actually speak about how they're feeling and whether they need help. They shouldn't be afraid to ask for help. And if they're grieving the loss of a resident, they shouldn't be afraid to show emotions. Because as Tom Kidwood said, the fundamental change that we have to make in the culture of aged care and in the hospital setting particularly is to realise that the whole system is about relationships. It's about human emotions. We're providing an emotional supportive system and service to people at the most vulnerable stage of their life. And we should be able to be empathetic, we should be able to show compassion and grieve with the families and the person at times where they're in a state of distress. And this would be the mark of a quality person-centred service. Oh, so, um, so in order for the resident and their family carer to understand the care situation and the nature and purpose of care and treatment, we need to be able to work together with the family and with, with the residents in ways that I've described. And so therefore, these staff need more time to build up that knowledge and they need more time to provide that person-centred care. And this is why I started the whole talk with saying, we've got to change the system and the structure and we all have to stand up and agitate. I've been agitating as much as I can at government level, um, policy level, um, but we need people like you who are the people who work in the system. I mean, I don't, I don't come over as authentic, even though I work in the system a lot of the time and I have my mother and other family members who I care for in the system. It's you people who work in the system who really are the best people to be able to be the advocates because you, you know it inside out. Um, and what we've got to be able to do is think about the environment. So I'm only going to mention this briefly, but basically sometimes the physical environment and the social environment isn't the best environment to provide the best quality care. The hospital system generally is a shocking environment for older people, as you know. People come out of hospital with pressure ulcers, they come out dehydrated, constipated and malnourished, and they often come out with terrible injuries. Or sometimes they go, in for treatment investigation and they, they die. So the hospital system is a shocking system for older people and there has to be agitation at the federal and state level to change the way we build hospital units for older people. Now at the residential care setting level, we know as well that there are many homes that have not been built properly, particularly for people with a cognitive impairment. So that's why a lot of dementia-specific units are being built now, and there's going to be more of that in the future. But one of the problems we have is that economies of a scale for the for-profit providers in particular is such that if they don't have an X number of residents 
in a home, then they're not going to make a profit. Now, the not-for-profit providers are also faced with that same dilemma because they too have to offer efficiencies of scale. They can't operate if they don't have enough money to operate. Now, while they get tax relief from the government, uh, which helps them to put money back into buildings and into services, the for-profit providers don't get tax relief from government. So that is why they aim to strive to make a profit for their shareholders. And this is the big issue. So with the, um, with the growth of the aged care industry, um, what's happening is that the, the for-profit providers are building bigger places so they get more profit. And unfortunately, the bigger the place, the worse for anybody who's got any sort of cognitive impairment. So smaller units are more uh, uh, better quality outcomes, but the bigger units are more efficient. So this is the issue and the dilemma. And we have to keep striving as best as we can to bring forth the research which shows clearly that the big for-profit providers do not provide the best quality outcomes. We've done extensive research around the world which shows that. Whatever the for-profit providers might say, it's not the case. The not-for-profit providers have the better quality services and better outcomes on all sorts of measures because they plough money back into services. And therefore, we must try to agitate to actually in ensure that the environments are the best environments for older people to be living in. And we need time to finish. And we must strive to make sure that the care experience is a positive one. So I have to finish there now, but you can get access to my slides for anything that we haven't been able to talk about um, through the website if you're interested. Thank you. So there you have it, another brilliant speaker on aged care. If you have any questions, comments or feedback, you can always email us here at the shift podcast at nswnma.asn.au because we would really like to hear from you. Thanks once again for listening today. And don't forget, you can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud. Join us again next week for more nursing news. See you then.